Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of From Poverty to Power posts. Uh, lovely sunny afternoon, weekend approaching, all looking good. Um, started off the week with another post from my LSE students. This one's from Mirna Medina Silva from Nicaragua. And um, she, the, the, the posts are part of their assignments. They have to come up with a, a campaign or advocacy strategy that they would like to implement in their own country. Um, and uh, then blog about it or, or, or vlog about it, make a video. Mirna had a very nice vlog about her um, project, which was why, sh why you should care about sea turtles, which are endangered in Nicaragua, but could become to Nicaragua what sloths are to Costa Rica, you know, a sort of national symbol, which brings in lots of tourists and income. Um, it was interesting looking at you know, what my students got exercised about, what they got passionate about this year tends to be environmental identity politics, some work around refugees. I'm afraid not much class war in evidence these days. You don't see much about economic issues um, from the current generations of, of, of young activists. Uh, that may change over time. We'll see. Um, second post of the week was my links I liked roundup from different things I've seen on, on Twitter. Actually, one of the things was something I took a photo of round the corner from my house in South London. Somebody had carved a very nice BLM slogan into their hedge. So I just asked whether protestopiary is a thing now and whether there are any examples. The only example I was sent was an obscene one, which was not what I was asking about. Um, uh, I'd be, uh, yeah, does Extinction Rebellion have, have hedge, hedges cut uh, in the Extinction Rebellion sign? If not, why not? The other thing I really liked on that links I liked was a lovely video um, from The Guardian uh, interviewing young Somali Cambridge undergrads um, about what it is like to, and they're all women, what it's like to be young Somali and female and Muslim at Cambridge. And the nice thing about it was, yes, it made lots of really powerful points, but it also had a great sense of humour. They were very British as well as coming from their own context. And I just thought the, the interplay between all these different contexts was really fascinating. Middle of the week, we launched a program which I'm starting to get quite excited about. We've got a bit of money out of the LSE from um, the Atlantic Fellows scheme there to run a program on emergent agency in a time of COVID. Now, emergent agency is, um, you know, the political and social side effects of the crisis of the pandemic in terms of how do people organise and what sort of legacy emerges. So we want to understand the responses that are triggered in low-income communities, um, whether political, social, economic, whatever it is. Um, and what we're going to do is gather up a load of stories, get lots of partners who are involved in this kind of work or who are spotting these kind of things, process them and see what patterns we can find and then discuss those patterns and refine them. And this is going to be a kind of light touch, networky kind of process. If you or your organisation is working on something where you might be spotting these forms of organisation that are emerging around COVID, then please get in touch. All the details are on that blog. But um, already we've had a load of replies and it's looking like we've touched a nerve and it could be a lot of fun, this conversation about um, you know, what we're finding, what, what, what's emerging in terms of people's action, citizen organisation from the pandemic. Fourth post for the week was by uh, Melissa Burgess and Michael O'Donnell from Save the Kids, Save the Children. Um, 
And they just uh, published an enormous study uh, asking over 13,000 children um, and 31,000 caregivers in 46 countries uh, about COVID and how COVID has, has, has affected their lives. And so this was a kind of overview piece to, to um, tell people that the report's been published and try and lure them into reading the more detailed stuff. And um, Melissa and Michael identified three issues. They said, first of all, universe, universality and difference in the impacts. So some things we can all relate to, fear, um, quality of distance learning, contact with friends, loneliness. But they said there are major differences depending on who you are, your positionality, you know, um, especially around issues like disability, but also gender, location, socioeconomic status, migration. Um, and they talked a bit about disability, you know, just showing that children from households where the parent or caregiver, caregiver had a disability reported violence in the home much more than those where parents and caregivers did not have a disability. Um, so this sounds like what I would call intersectionality, that, that forms of um, uh, inequality intersect and, and produce you know, particular results. But that was one insight. The second one was the centrality of getting the return to school right. And that's not just so that children go back to learning, but also for well-being, their sense of, val uh, you know, uh, of, of well-being and protection from violence. The return to school is a crucial moment in getting through the COVID pandemic. And then the third one, the importance of listening to and involving children. Say the children's always had a very big place for the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which I've written, I wrote a book about back in the day. And they say it's very important to ensure that policymaking really is in the best interest of children. And the best way to do that is to, is to involve them in making those policies. And they said just in passing, although they didn't give any details, these insights are causing us in Save the Children to revise our priorities and adapt our responses, which is the mark of a good bit of research if it changes what you do. The last piece of the week was uh, a piece by me, and it was on uh, based on a conversation I had with some um, with a, a good governance organisation in Myanmar, where I'm sort of an advisor to them. Um, and this was a long three days of Zoom, 7 a.m. starts on Zoom, which was a bit much, but that's what time zones do to you. Um, and it was about how they are responding to COVID. So they, they're a really interesting organization, the Center for Global Governance, sorry, Center for Good Governance. Um, and they, um, they have brilliant Myanmar staff who are incredibly well connected with different bits of the political um, uh, landscape in Myanmar. And so it was a really interesting conversation. And uh, I think CGG prides itself on its ability to adapt, um, and, and they really have done that. I've had some previous posts on the blog about just how well they've done that. But there was a light bulb moment when one of the staff who was actually talking to politicians gently pointed out that actually evidence isn't always that important. And this is an organisation that does evidence. You know, they produce vast amounts of evidence. They try and use evidence to influence policy. They try and get policymakers to use evidence better. And here was somebody very, very wise, uh, Myanmar self saying, yeah, actually it's relationships. You know, it's, it's whether people trust you, it's connections. Um, and that CGG in, in, this, in this person's view needed to shift from producing evidence to creating influence. And some of them we sort of unpacked that a bit. And so what does that mean? Well, um, you need to rethink your programs. Yeah, the projects you run. 
If you want to generate evidence, you do a well-documented pilot, you know, with a great baseline and you publish the results and then you just sit back and wait because these evidence-hungry decision makers are just going to fall on your paper, um, you know, like starving people and fit it into all their projects. Well, good luck with that. If you're about relationships, it's actually how many people can you involve in the pilot? Can you get them on the reference group? Can you get them on the steering group? Can you get them to come and see it? Because those relationships will be what takes the pilot into, into, you know, into scale, into government programs. Who you hire, well, you may hire people for their networks. You know, you may want nodes, not nerds. You may want to have, I, yeah, I, I looked at one adapt, um, uh, thinking and working politically program in the Philippines that intentionally hired ex-professors from, from major universities because those people had fantastic connections with their former students who are now ministers and senior civil servants and they've got a kind of access to those former students that other people don't have. So do you hire for that? Um, well, interesting. You might yeah, look for natural networkers and people with existing networks in terms of who you hire. In terms of comms, the, 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 the lesson from the CGG staff, from the, especially from the Myanmar staff, is very much what you hear in Britain as well, which is, you know, politicians basically don't read much. You know, and that from in, in Myanmar, we were told, you, you know, nothing more than a page. And really what you want is a visual and plus talk, plus an elevator pitch, five minutes max of talk. Uh, and that's what you need. It's got to be one slide. Uh, in me media terms, it seems like Myanmar is a bit further advanced on social media than, than, than many other countries, that the government's particularly allergic or aware of Facebook. And if things get hot on Facebook, they feel the need to respond. So you need to think which media are the government actually uh, relating to, responding to. And then if you're working around relationships, You've got to factor in volatility. There's how many times have I seen people have invested in nurturing a relationship with a particular politician or a civil servant, and then they get they retire, they get sacked, um, they move on to a different ministry you're not interested in, and people think, oh, what a waste of time. So there's a real um, natural wastage around relationships and relationships in, in advocacy. So maybe you need to think about having going wide as well as deep, having a wide range of relationships which are easy to trigger and build on when people get into a position that, you know, of decision making rather than just focus on the people who are at the top of the tree right now. So I'm thinking of things like staff colleges, maybe the right universities or university courses where future decision makers are going to come. You can build your relationships there and then you can step it up when you need to. Now, obviously, you know, in the, on the blog, I tend to oversimplify and it annoys people and I use binaries to get people thinking. And people are saying, yes, obviously, it's not either or. It's not either evidence or relationships. But I think, you know, and you, evidence can provide a conversation starter. It's the basis on which people might have confidence in you. If you get evidence wrong and you get exposed, then you lose a lot of trust very quickly. So there's reputational issues there. So, yeah, OK, that's all true. Um, and I accept that. But but then final final point of this blog and the final point of the conversation was, OK, so how does COVID changes this, change this? Because COVID has quite a big impact on a relationship based kind of advocacy because you can't go and meet people. It's much harder and you definitely it's much harder to go and build new relationships. So there's fewer chance encounters, fewer coffee breaks in comp, in seminars or meetings, you know, um, schmoozing just doesn't happen. So. And it's not the same on Zoom. It really isn't. So, so in a crisis like COVID, 
people gravitate towards their existing network. So decision makers look to people they already know and trust. Um, and so you should probably be placing more emphasis on your existing networks rather than trying to cultivate new relationships from scratch. So that's a kind of, yeah, that was the final thought on how does COVID shift this? Um, which is bad news if you're just getting into the sector because you've got to find relationships somehow, but it's going to be hard until people are back in schmoozing mode. And on that note, have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.